Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera. Coming to you once again from, well, my closet. You know, we are solidly into week two of the coronavirus lockdown here in Los Angeles. And if you listened last week, you know that I turned my kid's playroom closet into a makeshift sound booth where I am right now. So the question on my mind is, how is everybody doing? One thing I've discovered about this self-isolation scenario is that it gives one a lot of time to think, which for an artist can be both a good thing and a scary thing. Figuring out how to best use my time has been a constant theme in these past two weeks. Although in truth, I'm spending most of it cooking free meals a day, plus snacks for my kids, doing a ton of laundry and housework, and trying to figure out ways to get outside while staying six feet apart from everyone. I'm sure, like everyone else. And I'm curious about all of you because most of the people that listen to this show are artists. From working actors, directors, and musicians, to fine artists, writers, editors, designers, and enthusiasts of every kind. And as you all know, figuring out how to navigate these careers is hard enough without the added pressure of being stuck at home with no way to practice your craft, or in a lot of cases, find work. So I want to know how everyone's handling it. I think that sharing our stories is one way to make all of this easier to bear. So if you want to, send me an email and let me know how you're coping with our new reality. And maybe next week I can read some letters on the air. My email is sam at offcamera.com. And just write me a letter and let me know how your experience is going with the virus, how it's affecting your family, your finances, your work, your creativity, and your mood. And most of all, I know you've been hearing this from every corner of the world, but please stay inside and home and away from everybody and wash your hands like crazy and take every precaution. I read this crazy stat that if everybody just stood still for 14 days, this thing would be over. And obviously that can't happen, but it gives you an idea of how interconnected we all are when it comes to this disease. It's not a partisan political situation at all. It, it crosses borders. It is a human situation. So please respect the scientists, respect the health experts, and we can all get through this. Now, the episode I'm about to present to you is one of our earlier ones from our second season. And to this day, it remains one of my all-time favorites. Jack Black and I met each other when we were both starting our careers. Me as a still photographer on the set of the film Bob Roberts, and Jack as an actor in that film, which was his first feature film ever. We became friends back then, and I've always found Jack to be such a genuine man, and yet I was unprepared for how personal and revealing this conversation would turn out to be. As funny as Jack is, he chose to share some real moments of vulnerability in his career that made me see him in a whole new light. And in a lot of ways, this episode set the template for what off-camera could do as a show. And I often name this episode when people ask me for a favorite. This episode has it all. Laughter, singing, secrets, tears, and some genuine peek-behind-the-curtain revelations. So, with no further ado, here's Jack Black. Hello and welcome to another edition of Off Camera. I'm your host, Sam Jones, and in this episode, I sit down with actor, musician, court jester, and rocket sauce-fueled Dorcas Domingai, Jack Black. Here's a Jack Black fact. His first film was Tim Robbins' mockumentary, Bob Roberts, which also happened to be my first gig as an on-set photographer. Back then, he was far from a household name. It took some heartbreak and some hard rock for him to find his voice before electrifying the screen and all of us with his breakout performance in High Fidelity. 
He seems to have this completely innate ability to find the sympathetic and real in any character, no matter how much outrageousness he throws on top of it. I was really surprised to find out how he got into performing in the first place. And I had so many questions about his development as an artist, the evolution of the almighty Tenacious D, and his experiences on different film sets. And some of those things we actually answer. Folks, if you like your conversations to proceed in an orderly fashion, I'm sure there's a math podcast out there somewhere you can tune into. But if you like your inspiration with a liberal dusting of clown powder, this is your jam. We'll ponder music, movies, mastering anxiety, and how to crash the Cannes Film Festival. As successful as Jack Black's become, he doesn't claim to have all the answers. But since our days on Bob Roberts, he's become pretty sure of what he's here to do. Right now, he's here to amaze and astound us with his elusive wisdom. So pull up a chair and listen in. Jack Black, you're here. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's good to be here, Sam. Well, thanks for doing it. And, My pleasure. Um, you know, it, it was fun. We reconnected a bit over this summer, and, uh, and it got me thinking about the first time I met you, because you and I have a parallel start to our careers. We both got our first job on a film from Tim Robbins. Yeah. And it was Bob Roberts. 1990. And you played Roger Davis, the like fervent neoconservative supporter of Bob Roberts, the politician. But that film was completely misleading to me. I got on there and the crew all loved each other and the cast loved each other and everyone hung out. We played basketball together. And I thought, oh, this is how, this is what being a photographer on a movie set is. And then I went off and, and did another movie and it was awful, comparatively. Yeah. And I wonder if you had some of those same memories of- uh, Yeah, that was the next uh, 10 years or so after that. Because uh, that was a major, that was my first film role. Yeah. And uh, it was so fun and satisfying. And then, uh, you know, it went to uh, Cannes Film Festival. That's right. Did you go with the next it? next year. I was not invited to go with it, but I did go with it. I you just did. went with it. You just... Because my father lived in Cannes. Oh, really? It was very fortuitous. So, uh, yeah, I arranged to go visit my father at the time that it was... Why in quotes? <laughs> because I wasn't going to visit my father. I was going to go to the <laughs> Cannes like, Film Festival. He's not really my father. crash on my dad's couch while I went and partied with Tim Robbins and Robert Altman up on a French mountaintop. Oh, my God. Smoked a doobie with Tim Robbins and Robert Altman. In France. Over, yeah, overlooking, like, the twinkling night sky. Oh, my God. In Cannes. Well, um... And Tim was the king of Cannes He really year. was that year, because he had the player. They was, like, the headline of the variety, because he had the player. He was right. the star of the player. And he, his directorial debut with Bob Roberts. But anyway, I thought, my, my shit is set, because I got a funny part in this movie, and I'm going to get uh, my career rolling now. I was like... 21 and just like all hot and bothered and ready to party in Hollywood. But uh, yeah, it just led to a lost decade of no one really caring that I was in Bob Roberts. And Is that true? Well, I got a, an agent. Right. So I kind of got things going. But uh, it was just the same old thing with, you know, going on auditions and sometimes getting little bit parts and sometimes not and sometimes getting like, if you look at, you know, that that decade, it's mostly just like, um, glorified extra roles. Isn't that funny how you can think, okay, now, now people, like, this is the thing and yeah. this is just how it goes and, and, and a career never follows steps like that, right? No. Yeah. But I still look back to that moment as like, like a, a, 
a little stepping stone, a little plateau, a little handhold that I could... Uh, right. Well, I wondered about, you know, Tim wrote that, directed it, and starred in it, and it was, it was his, the first time he directed, I think. Yeah. And um, I wondered if, if watching him do that, like, like, since you already knew him and you were in his, his world in the, in the actor's gang and everything, if that was sort of a lesson to you of like, oh, you can take your career into your own hands, or like, did you have that? Uh, well, you know, I had deep inspiration from Tim going further back. I was tracking him. I was like, that's my connection. That's the guy that I kind of know, you know, for years. Did it feel that way? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. No, you, you, you do a little thing with someone and you, and you know someone that's uh, kind of uh, in the machine. You right. like, could, could make a mental note of it because... Uh, so you didn't have a million contacts. No, you, you I didn't have world. any family. My parents, no one in my family had any kind of uh, entertainment huh. industry uh, connections. Well, did you have to audition for Bob Roberts? Uh, yeah, but I had an in because by then I, I was kind of in the actors gang. Okay. Because out of UCLA, I went to UCLA theater program, and uh, I knew uh, some people from from the actors gang theater company. Uh, my friend Bob White, who who taught at Crossroads School at my high school, um, got me into a play that he directed that was an actors gang show, and so. I kind of made my way back to Tim Robbins, you know, after all those years. And I was like, hey, do you remember we did that? And he's like, oh, yeah, Jack, what's happening? And um, then Tim was like, everybody in the actors gang, come and audition for my movie that I'm going to direct. So everyone was like, oh, fuck, awesome. Uh, so we all had a little bit of an in there. Oh, that's, I see. Yeah, we had, we had a better shot of getting in that movie than your average actor Joe off the street. So what was your mindset then? Like, did you, were you nervous out of your mind or were you like this is my crowd of people and well there's tons of nervous energy I mean I wanted it so bad I could taste it it was like you know the the forbidden fruit and my mouth was just salivating and uh, I loved the part you know this kind of psycho fan that just wanted to be Bob Roberts and you know it was very close to home I didn't have to there, there was it was real because it was like I was obsessed with Tim Robbins, so it was like the substitution couldn't have been more obvious and easy. Right. And I was fucking nervous out of my mind to be in a movie. I'd never been in a movie, so my heart's going like this. And the character's heart is going like that because he's freaking out because he's in the presence of greatness. So it was right. like, like everything this shocked just sort of, face. Yeah. Yeah, it just worked. And I remember that uh, I was taking my sweet-ass time when we were filming it, and... Uh, Tim came up and said, just throw it away. Just go way, way, way faster. And I was like, oh, God, he hates it. He hates me. He hates everything. I'm sucky. This is my last film. And then we did another take, and I just fucking did it fast and threw it away. And I was like, oh, well, so much for that. That sucked. And then when I saw the movie, I was like, holy shit, it was really good. It was a great note. And, you know, I learned something there that, um, what did I learn? (laughs) That you don't always know. Just because it doesn't feel great doesn't mean it's not great. Right. But plus, you can look back now and go, well, that was Tim's first movie, too. He, yeah. he didn't know how to talk to actors or exactly what he wanted yet either, right? So yeah. maybe that was too early in a way. For sure. Because even though I had a good experience on Bob Roberts and I got 
you know, some some attention from it. it I hadn't really found my voice yet as a performer. Right. I was trying uh, to do lots of different things, you know. There was dramatic parts and, and comedic parts. I wasn't really do thinking uh, about who I was going to be. I mean, did you ever have Saturday Night Live aspirations or, or like some of those comedic guys like... For a minute, I was yeah. thinking, yeah, I, 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 I was dancing around the idea of going and auditioning for Saturday Night Live because, uh, yeah, I knew other people that were going to audition, but I, I didn't end up going. But I started to plan my Saturday Night Live audition. What was that going to be? I don't want to tell you because it sounds so dumb. Oh, come on. I'm going to tell you, but I definitely would not have gotten into Saturday Night Live with this audition. Basically, one of them, my character that I made up, I had never tried this in front of a crowd. Right. Was going to be this guy called, like, Misslehead or something. I can't even remember. But he was like a superhero, and he was very powerful, and if he stomped his foot, like cracks would happen in the soil. I can't remember exactly what. It was horrible. I didn't go. So obviously, I don't know. Misslehead could be a huge thing. Who knows? We'll never know. I mean, I've never seen a superhero that actually breaks up Earth when he's dead. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to do it now. There was a lot of mime involved in my... Because we have a new studio here. I don't want... I don't want... <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I could have gone there, but I could, I could have also gone to, like, a, maybe a Juilliard direction. Like, I was thinking... I actually did audition for Juilliard. You did? It was a horrible audition. No kidding. Yeah. It was so pretty half-assed. Right, you I were, like, like not... You didn't know who you, who you Yeah, were. no. I did a little Shakespeare monologue, uh, and I didn't... Yeah. But, um... Yeah, like I said, I, I hadn't really figured out my thing yet. I, I was listening to an interview with you where you were talking about a musical you were in in high school, mm -hmm. and at the last minute before you were supposed to go on, you totally thought you should quit and not do it. Is that, do I have that story right? It was Caucasian Chalk Circle. I had a freak out. Uh, I, 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 I was paralyzed with fear. Couldn't sleep at all the night before we went on, and I called my theater teacher, Scott Weintraub, and he said, meet me over at uh, Ray's Diner. Right. So we met at Ray's Diner, and I was just like, I'm sorry. I've been pulling my hair out all night. I can't go on stage. It's going to be bad. I'm not going to be able to do it. I can't do it. Right. And he was like, fine. We, we'll cancel. We don't have to do it. Let's not do it. I was like, thank you. And then we just sat there and just talked about my fears for a while, and then I was like, I'll do it. Really? Yeah, he turned me around. Because he was like, it doesn't matter if you totally take a shit and it sucks. That's fine, too. Okay, well, what were you most like, afraid of happening? Like, what do you think? Just not being good. People th judging me. Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think most actors have to struggle with it. Just getting up in front of people is a terrifying proposition. And that's the weird thing, because I have this deep need for attention, and I love to get up on stage and perform. It's like the best drug there is. But then there's also this horrible dread and a little part of me before every show that hopes that it gets canceled for some reason. Really? Yeah. Was there a particularly bad experience where you were judged and it was just a horrible thing? Like, I remember uh, putting on a little show for my cousin and her boyfriend. And um, 
I was putting on the thing and there was a punchline to the thing that I was doing. I don't even remember what it was. And I got to the jokey part of my show and uh, it was just crickets. And they were just looking at me like... And then I pretended like that wasn't the punchline. There's more to the show. And I was just sweating out there, just like trying to do stuff and there was no laughs and it was like I was just dying. And I, yeah, I, it was like I was, uh, I was bombing. And it felt, it was horrible. It's a horrifying feeling. So there's a scene in School of Rock where Tamika, who's a great singer, right before the audition says, I have to quit. I can't do this. I'm too afraid. And you pull her aside. And when I saw that again, after hearing that interview, I thought, I, did you make up that scene like right then? Or was that, did that come directly from your experience? No, I wish. But I definitely connected with it in that way. Like I was talking to myself. When the writing is really good, it does. It comes off like it came out of your own mouth as a as an actor. When you, but you know that part was written for me, so it's gonna some stuff is gonna seem like it just came from me, right? But it was just someone who really knew me really well. I think it's interesting. Like you did say, you learned in that time that that just because something scares you doesn't mean you should avoid it. Yeah, you know, there's some there's some regrets over the years, some things that I, I should have done that I didn't do because I was afraid. But um, sometimes when you fail to answer the call of adventure, there's something to be learned there. You go, next time I'm going to do it. Right, right. I'm not going to be a douche. I think it's harder when you want it really bad. Yeah. Now, it doesn't surprise Wait, me. Do, do you have some techniques? Well, I think... One of the things I had to learn to do was prepare, like over-prepare to where I felt confident enough. Right. Sometimes I'll do that, and it, it'll still come apart at the seams. Really? There was this thing I did. You know, one of my favorite musicians of all time was Elliot Smith. Yeah. He just wrote the most heartbreaking, beautiful songs. The melody is genius. He's a genius. Say Yes is one of my favorite songs. Yeah. It's funny you say that. That was the fucking song. So they were doing this tribute to Elliot Smith at Largo right. a couple years back. And Flanny, the uh, owner of the club. It's Mark Flanagan. A legendary club in Los Angeles for anyone who hasn't been there. Uh, Largo at the Cornet. And uh, he says, come on down and sing a song. I know, I, we know you love Elliot. And I was like, oh, shit, okay. The thing is, his songs are not funny. You know, they're, they're, they're pretty sincere. And that's my thing is I don't really do it unless there's like a little pinch of humor or something. But anyways, I was like, I love it. I love him. Which song? Say Yes. They wanted me to do Say Yes. I'm doing Say Yes. And so I rehearsed it in my car hours, hours and hours of trying to memorize it, writing it down. I did everything in my power to get it right. And really? Then, and then we got there and the show. it was time to do the show. And People were going out there and singing Elliot Smith songs all night. John Bryan, gorgeous, everybody. And then it was my turn to do Say Yes, and I went out there, and I'm... I'm in love with the world through the eyes of a girl. And then something, you, you, your brain freezes up when it gets to that part where you're supposed, you know the line, you, you think that thing it was like... What if I don't say the right line? What if I don't remember the line that's coming next and forget about it? And, and so I beefed it, and I said, sorry, everyone. We're going to start from the beginning. I know no one else has fucked up their songs. I fucked up mine, though, but that's okay. Take it from the top. Hit it, John Bryan. I'm in love with the world. 
and it got to the part again, fucked it up again. And, and this Sorry, is not folks. a joke. It's now serious. there's a, some titters in the audience. Sorry, we're doing it again. Elliot Smith's sister is there. I think he had some other family. It was like, no, you got to get it right. This is like, it's almost like a memorial service. Right. It's a holy time. Everyone in the crowd worships fucking Elliot Smith. And then, take it from the top. I swear to God, we did it like eight times. I couldn't get through. And then the ninth time, I made it through the song. And everyone just erupted in applause and cheering because I made it through. But oh my God. it was such a catastrophe. It was... A fiasco. That, to a small extent, it's like half the time when you know someone's name, but you're just afraid to deploy it <laughs> on the 1% chance you have it wrong. And you go, hey. And That's they me. know you don't know. Well, dude, I've done it to the point where it's like, there's something wrong with my brain. Like, introducing my dad one time, I was like, this is... Uh, because the fear, it freezes, yeah. doesn't matter. Yeah. And you know the weird thing, my dad's name is Thomas and my name is Thomas. I'm not really Jack Black, I'm Thomas Jacob Black. Right. But I couldn't remember Thomas, it's my name. Forgot your name. fucking, <laughs> so many layers of impossibly. But this brings up like how if, you know, if, if that can happen to you and if you know these things are out there along your path, you have picked the worst thing to do for I know. <laughs> It's the definition of stage fright. Uh, yeah, remembering things is not my strong suit. So in terms of music, um, you know, because you, you say that the, the way into a song for you is with some humor, right? Um, but as a kid, music was really important to me because I felt like where my parents didn't understand me or my peers didn't understand me, there are certain bands that did, you know, and I felt like, Bob Dylan or The Clash or Pete Townsend, those people understood me. And, and so I think I forged a lot of my identity through music by taking on almost like other figures or mentors in these lyric writers and stuff. So I considered you know, music to be a very serious thing. And I wondered if, obviously you love music from a young age and everything, I wonder if it came from a comedic place always, or if, or if you felt that same way. I mean, were you a kid that loved music and, and it, I don't know, helped you get through stuff as a kid? Yeah, I don't know if I had as good a taste as you, though. Well, you listen, I named, Dylan. I named the good ones. I liked Bob Dylan in high school a lot. I liked a couple of Bob Dylan jams, but like, uh, just because he was rocking so hard. Like, I liked the really hard rocking live version it's only, he only does it this way one time, live, in front of like a gigantic crowd of hippies. It's like 1969, but it was that song, uh, It's All Right, Ma. Oh, I'm Only Bleeding. I'm Only Dying. Right, right. But he never plays it that fast and hard. And you know the version I'm talking about? Yeah, exactly. That's the only time I've really connected with Bob Dylan. I was more like, Journey, sticks. Well, let's be, let's, let me put everything on the table here. The first band I fell in love with ever yeah. was Kiss. Oh, yeah. And Kiss was it for me. Yeah. I, I once told my parents that Peter Chris was a better drummer than Gene Krupa. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe he was. Yeah, better makeup. Yeah, better makeup for sure. But, but you know, I, I think that that was the first time I, I saw Kiss and I said, that's, that's for me, that's different than 
you know. Can you imagine, though, if Gene Krupa sat in for Peter Chris at a Kiss show? If, like, Peter Chris was sick <laughs> and Gene Krupa comes in with the makeup, it wouldn't be right. He wouldn't know how to do it. No. But let's flip-flop he it. He would put some flair on let's it. Put but it would be the Chris wrong flair. Into the Gene Krupa. Disaster. Disaster. Even worse. No, but did you, did you have that connection Who's better, with music? though? Gene Krupa or Buddy Rich? See, I would, I would think most people would say Buddy Rich, yeah. right? They would. Wow. Although Gene Krupa was that had that those quick hands. Yeah. You know, like that would be a great drum off battle yeah. for the ages. Yeah. But they're both dead, right? Yeah. But you know they do those things now with the holograms. Yeah, I could see you That's know a show. Coachella. Yeah, Coachella. The Buddy Rich Gene Krupa tent. You put your money on who you think. They gonna... definitely both had solos, so oh, you could go sure. back and forth. Yeah. But Buddy Rich played like he was in a battle to be who's gonna. Krupa wasn't so vicious, right? I mean, not so. It wasn't so. He's kind of laid back. Yeah, he was chilling. He was more like a behind the beat sort of guy. Yeah, in the pocket. In the pocket. So where Buddy were Rich we? was playing for his life. People are like, they're gonna tune in right now to this part of the show, and they're like, yeah. "Wow, this is some sort of jazz appreciation show." This isn't making the cut. This part, <laughs> we know this is on the cutting room floor. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like you know we could turn on a few people to Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa. Okay, so but getting back to the idea of music, I mean, I guess I'm trying to figure out if music at one point was too important to you, and then you had to make fun of it or something. Well, you know, I I was all. I, I was in the music a little bit, like I took the obligatory year of piano lessons, uh -huh. but I set my goal. I was like, I just really want to learn Pink Panther, and then I'm going to quit piano. And my parents were like, fine. <laughs> so that was sort of what happened. Now, of course, I regret it. I wish I would have stayed on to learn like some ragtime. It would have been pretty rad to have that thing go on. Oh yeah, or stride piano, which is That would be badass. Like I really am blown away by people that can play ragtime. Yeah, the Scott Joplin. My sister played Maple Leaf Rag. Oh, she was the piano player that could play ragtime in our house. So she was badass. I heard that she was. It's all about the left hand. I've been told she learned like Haydn's Concerto in C, which is seventeen pages when she was in seventh grade. And my oh. dad said if she learned it, he'd buy her a horse. So, huh. And she learned it, and he reneged and got her a three-speed bike. Oh. I don't think she ever forgave him. Of course she didn't. No. I wouldn't forgive him either. He owes her but, a horse so he, to this day. He promised her a horse, and before he had looked at the price tag. That's right. He's like, he let where are we going to put research. a horse? Yeah. Oh, and where are you going to put the yeah. Horses are like the most expensive thing you yeah, can do. Yeah, we have like a little backyard. The maintenance. The suburban, you know, yeah. Yeah. There's no horse coming. No, you got to rent a stall at the ranch. Yeah. <laughs> but the loss of the trust, Can't the father-daughter. my dad under the bus yeah. on live television. No, I listen. We've all been there. No, but uh, but <laughs> this is uh, this conversation is going so far into subjects I never thought it would. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. You know, we all need help sometimes. 
I'm not ashamed to admit that throughout my career, I have sought the help of professionals when I was working through stress or insecurity or trying to figure out my career or my family or my upbringing. And finding the right person at the right time is sometimes the hardest thing of all. But with BetterHelp, they offer online counseling and they have licensed counselors who specialize in issues including depression, anxiety, family relationships, grief, stress, trauma, anger, all of the big human issues. And with BetterHelp, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions with your therapist. Plus, you can securely exchange unlimited messages. And it's this easy. You simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs, and then you get matched with a counselor, and you start communicating in under 24 hours. And if you're for any reason unhappy with your counselor, you can easily request a new therapist at any time for no additional charge. So with BetterHelp, you can get professional help when you want it, whenever it's the most convenient. And that is one of the great things about our modern world. So if you don't have someone to talk to and you need some help, try BetterHelp. And for our listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with the discount code CAMERA. You just go to betterhelp.com CAMERA and you get 10% for your first month. So why not get help? Try betterhelp.com CAMERA. Now back to the show. You, unlike me or most anyone in the world, at one point must have discovered that you can really sing, right? Uh, yeah, I, did, I do remember a time when I was like, wait a second, I'm actually pretty good at singing. When did that happen? It was in high school. I was auditioning because everyone, yeah, auditioned for the different parts in the school musical. And uh, I auditioned with a song from uh, Pippin. It was Pippin. And I was singing a song by the leading player, Glory. And it was just like, glory, 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 glory. I did it better back then. That's pretty But the good. thing is, when I found, like, I, I, I found that extra gear, I was able to throw it into overdrive with some, like, gravel and some yeah, power. Yeah. And I was like, what is this thing? I have a Lamborghini I didn't know I possessed. Well, that's, I wondered, I, I thought if I said that, you'd be like, no, no, but you no, actually there was discovered a moment. it like that. That's amazing. And I remember there was um, a girl that I was attracted to in high school, a dancer, and she was like in the room. She was auditioning next. And I remember after I finished my audition and I was walking, she was looking at me in a way that she had never looked at me. Really? And I was like... I will continue to sing <laughs> forever and ever. <laughs> so once you discover that, are you like, I'm forming a band, I want to be in a band? Like, did no. you have a band in high school? Yeah, we were the worst. And did you have one gig, five gigs? We had like uh, probably five rehearsals and one gig disbanded. What happened? It was a disaster. How? How was it a disaster? Well, we were rehearsed pretty hard. Yeah. Five rehearsals. Yeah, you that's know, a lot these, of rehearsals. These are multi-hour rehearsals, mind yeah. you. And I'm assuming all covers. All covers. And we put a lot of work into it. And uh, then there was a party. We probably played Crazy Train or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. And um, no one was paying attention. Like, the talk amongst the kids was louder than uh, the band. And we finished the song, no applause, it was just like fucking shit. And then uh, some other kids 
who were just hanging out were like, can we do a song? We thought of a song. We just had one rehearsal uh, earlier today. We wrote a song. Yeah, go ahead. And they used our instruments. And uh, the whole party just erupted and it was fucking in love with these guys. Oh, no. Yeah, I remember it was Brent Meske and uh, Joey Warnker on drums. I went to high school with Joey Warnker. Who, people should know, replaced Bill Berry in R.E.M. In R.E.M. Yeah. And before that, he was a Bex drummer, and now he's Bex drummer again. Anyway, he's a legendary drummer, so it's not really fair. Right. And Brent Meske was a very talented tunesmith, and their original was just so much more entertaining and funny and cool, and they were just way sexier than us. And, and we just, I was like, I'm, I quit the band. I refuse to be in a band. Well, okay, so I want to get back to the next time I saw you and was aware of you after Bob Roberts. Mm. When I saw um, High Fidelity, I, you know, I, I saw your name in the, in the credits before I went to see it or in the preview or whatever. But then when you first come on screen, that film has a different energy. And all of a sudden, like, there was this energy out of you and that character that was undeniable. No one who walked out of that film wasn't talking about you, you know? And, and I wonder first off if when you saw that script or saw that character, if you were like, that's me and I'm gonna kill that. I, the, the script came to me through uh, <clears throat> John Cusack. Right. And um, my agent said, you're doing this movie. You have no choice. You have to do this. It's Stephen Frears. And I, and I also love Stephen Frears at this point. You know, I had seen Dangerous Liaisons like a hundred times. And I was like, but I read the script and I was like, I'm not doing it. I know you're this is crazy. Me. I pass. Just pass. And the reason I was passing was because, it's a dumb reason, but it was like they name-checked Kurt Cobain in there and they like, the way that he like flippantly was throwing around certain names of musicians, I just thought was so, it just something ruffled my feathers wrong. I was like, you can't just say that guy's name and use it in a scene like it's a, you can't use certain names as tools in your tool shed. Something just made me mad about it. I don't know what, it didn't make sense. And also it was, you know, I was protective of Tenacious D because I had just gotten, you know, Tenacious D starting to go. Okay. Um, Tenacious D, that's the first time I felt like, <clears throat> like I fucking got it. I nailed a thing that's great and people love it and like this is, is this happening. For real, and it, it had been like a, a decade. It had been since like Bob Roberts where I felt like I had a handhold, you know? It'd been a long, dry, white season, so I was like, I don't know if I want to cash in, you know, the fucking Tenacious D uh, thing on a, a movie about music. Right. So right. now I'm going to do a movie about rock, you know, about music. Kind, you know what it was, though. The bottom line is I was just fi afraid... You know, because when, when, if you get something good going, there's a terror that comes along almost immediately after you do something good. It's like, don't, not, don't lose it. Keep, right. keep it. Don't do anything. Stop there. Die. So that that <laughs> won't be ruined. Right. Yeah, so uh, I didn't want to fuck up my thing. I had a good thing going. I didn't want to fuck it up. But then I realized I'm just afraid... This is a fucking Rolls Royce. I gotta do this part. And I and I said to Stephen Frears, I was like, I'd like to audition for it though, because 
I'm not gonna do it probably the way you think it should be done. So I just wanna do it for you the way I think it should be done. And then if you still want me, I'd like to do the movie. But I do remember going into his office and just totally shitting the bed and giving the worst audition ever and then saying, please just let me have the role. Now I've fucked it up. <laughs> really? He was like, the role is yours. It's been yours this whole time. Why are you being such an idiot? And I said, I don't know. I'm just afraid. Wow. So yeah, it was a long, there was a long, stupid drama queen road to getting that movie going. And then once you're there on set with Stephen Frears, how was that relationship between the two of you? Interesting, because uh, I revered him and I was very nervous around him. And uh, I just really wanted his approval. You know, I wanted him to love what I was doing. And he didn't, he wasn't that kind of guy. He's not the kind of guy that like heaps praise on anyone. So I was like always- Tim like, Robbins, right? Yeah. So I don't know how Why do you doing. find these guys? I don't know, but it brings out the best in me. So unfortunately, okay. I have to be tortured. So, so what would happen? Like you would think you like you would you would do a take and then look for something from him, and he would be poker faced. I don't know. I just remember acting my ass off and then looking over. Yeah, and he would go, "Good, it's fine, good, fine." I wouldn't say anything, but in my mind, I was like, "He hates me. This really? fucking sucks." <laughs> And so it just, it kept on going that way. And then I would go back to my hotel room and just think. And then like in the morning I would take a shower and I would say things like, I remember this one time I was like, I had like a big scene coming up that day and I was singing in the shower. This is so dumb. This is embarrassing. All of the fucking way. All of the fucking way. It wasn't really singing. I was like angrily chanting to myself in the shower to go all the way. Really? Yeah, because I was afraid I wasn't go, gonna go it's all like the way. It's like your mantra for the day. You I were just gonna... knew, it was, I knew I needed to go balls to the walls and there was something blocking me. So I needed to like do weird shit like that to just. I think it's so interesting. You know, when I, when I saw that film, it's set up so perfectly. Um, you know, at, at the end, the idea is that John Cusack, who owns the record store, uh, takes some neighborhood kids and decides to put out their EP. And so he's getting his life together and he's going to have this record release party and he's going to DJ at the party. And then it turns out your character's going to, his band is going to play Sonic Death Monkey. And, and John Cusack is like, this is going to be terrible because he's going to show up and drive everyone away before we play this EP and he's going to ruin my party. And everyone watching the, the film is assuming that's the way the script is going to go. <laughs> Like, everything's going to finally be going well for John Cusack, and then Sonic Death Monkey's going to get up and ruin everything. Yeah. And then you come on, and you start singing Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. And there's a you know, you sing a line or two, and, and the whole place goes kind of crazy. And then it cuts to John Cusack's face, and his eyebrows go up. And I think that, like, in that moment, my eyebrows went up, and I think everyone in the theater at every screening, their eyebrows went up. And, and it was like, oh, my God. Like... And I think that's the first time probably most of the world found out like that you can really sing and, and that you're this, I don't know, it was one of those moments I'll always remember and why I think I like that film so much because that surprise is felt within the film and, and in the audience as well. And I wonder if, if at that point in the film, if you knew like 
what the power of that scene was going to be. I mean, did you know you guys had something really special there? I knew that there was a lot of pressure on that scene. Before, we th it was like, wait a second, this is the big finish, it's the end of the movie, and it basically says, and then he's great at singing, and the song is great, and everyone loves it. So it's like, Did that terrify you? Yes, but you can't do that. <laughs> you can't write that. So, yeah, there was a lot of pressure on that song, and I remember they didn't want... They, initially in the script, it was a different song. It was a different Marvin Gaye song. It was the one that got Pharrell in all this trouble recently. Oh, I don't know. You used to go out to parties. Oh, it was that one. Dance till noon. Get yourself together, baby. Having a ball. And I was like, I'm not going to sing that song. That's not the song you sing at the end of fucking High Fidelity for a big finish. Let's do, let's get it on. If we're going to do Marvin Gaye, let's get it on. <laughs> I was like freaking out like, why did I say I'm going to do Let's Get It On? Which is a really hard song. It's a really hard, much harder. But I knew that it needed that like fucking, <clears throat> yeah, need to fucking get it on. Yeah. So then we did it. It was time to do it. And I did it. And the first take, uh, you know, we shot different things and then it was time for my thing. And uh, we did it, and it was just sort of, I didn't go all of the fucking way, that much we know. And it was just sort of lukewarm, and the audience was like, yay. And it was a big finish, the end of the movie. And uh, Stephen Frears said, cut! And he got up on the stage, and he didn't look at me. He looked at everybody in the audience. What the fuck are you doing? This is the end of the film. You are ruining the film. He was so mad, because he was like, they weren't fucking getting crazy and loving the song. Really? But really, I think he was yelling at me, but he didn't yell at me. He yelled at them for not cheering for me. But he was mad at me for fucking taking a shit on his movie. And he was like, let's take it again. And then I fucking, I blasted it out. I Do you fucking, think he's some sort of like psychological genius? I think he does have, uh, yeah, some warlock powers. I mean, e either that's totally your setting and you turn everything on yourself, or he was doing some major director mind ninja I think stuff. he knew what he was doing. Wow. So, so you elevated the... Yeah, I think I needed, I needed uh, someone to uncork me. Wow. That's what he did. He uncorked me. If he had yelled at me, it would have shut me down. I wouldn't have been able to... Uh, to I would have gone into my shell. And my wiener would have gone in the turtle close. <laughs> the balls would have gone up. And then you could just Wheeler's call it a in. night. Yeah. That's it. But he yelled at them. <laughs> for some reason, that worked for me. So that movie comes out, and, and I would assume that, you know, it's that idea when all of a sudden there's a film, and it's, getting, it's making a bunch of money, and people are seeing it, and they're talking, and who's this guy, right? What does the back end of that look like? In terms of what agents are doing, and like, because you had buzz. That's buzz, right? Well, uh, the beginning of that is at the premiere. You know, that's when that's when it all it's like unveiled, and you see what's the reaction here in this room, and uh, it was fucking rad. You know, people were really into my performance, and when I was I was watching the film, I hate watching myself, but I didn't hate watching that. That premiere was pretty enjoyable for me. And uh, afterwards, you know, my mom was there, and George Clooney was there, and, and, and uh, George Clooney came over and 
gave my mom a hug and a kiss, and my mom was just like in fucking heaven. She was like, duh, Clunster gave me a... And then he told me, you know, that he really liked what I did, and I was just like, yeah, I could just die. There's a few times, you know, when I was just like, I have this weird thing, like if things go really well, I kind of want to die. I kind of want to call it off. Really? Leave it on a good note. Really? Yeah. You were like, I should just never appear in cinema again. But, you know, things changed and things were very different after that. The main thing was I didn't need my head shot anymore. Right. Because it had just, you know, I'd just come off of like 20 years of really dorky headshots and going <laughs> to auditions with my headshots that weren't very good. And Did you ever audition again after that film? No. Ah, no, yeah, I, had, I did. I still would go in for, like, things that were really bitching. And Where not, you had to audition. Yeah. Like, what would be an example of something you auditioned for after? Was this before or after? This was after. But I remember auditioning for uh, Oliver Stone for a U-turn. Okay. And uh, Joaquin Phoenix got it. Right. He was a better actor. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about Bernie because yeah. you know you've done two films with Rick Linklater. He was yeah. one of my favorite filmmakers, and they couldn't be more different. That's true, right? You did School of Rock, yeah. and more recently you did Bernie. Yeah, and I think Bernie is um, it's it's uh, it's really interesting because there's two scenes where Bernie cries. Oh, yeah. And he breaks down. So talk about that a little bit, because you, you said once in an interview, you said everyone has dark emotions, but the question is, can you access them mm. on the moment you need them? Mm. Right? So when you knew you had to break down as Bernie and cry, I mean, was there that pressure? Did you feel that same pressure again? Because now you're older. That was made in 2013. Or did you worry that you couldn't access that kind of emotion and pull that off? Or Well, no, I knew I could do it, you know, when the cameras weren't there. I was having some really good uh, uh, rehearsals by myself. So I knew it was there if I could just, you know, it's always just a How question. How do you rehearse by yourself for a thing like that? Like, do you literally in the mirror? No, just... No. Uh, uh, it's just a feeling, you know, when you're when you're running the lines, you're memorizing the lines, and you're, you're going through the emotions of the scene, and uh, just saying it, and just finding the reality there, and then, you know, you'll start crying by yourself. It's like an insane person. It really is. What a weird job, <laughs> crying by yourself. <laughs> yeah, Who does that I mean, other you, than actors? But that's I mean that that's as a job. job. That, yeah, I mean, you that have is to the do job. That. It's the job of manufacturing emotions. So fucking weird. And at that point, you had kids, right? So you have yeah. to like find a place yeah, to go. Don't, cry yeah, don't yeah, don't let them see the weird, insane person. <laughs> um, so yeah, <laughs> I imagine that's got to be really hard, especially you know, given some of the things you say you deal with. Panic and anxiety. It's a mysterious thing. Panic and anxiety. I see it in my boys sometimes, and I get worried. That's like, oh no, I've infected them. I've infected them. Really? With my panicking anxiety. So you think, like, when you see your boys having panic and anxiety, you think mm. that it's actually, like, something that they can't get out from under just because of what you genetically ha have given them or it something? It must be. I must have uh, 
Yeah, it must be an extension of my own. So when you're, a, when you're in that situation, like, have you developed methods to deal with it? Uh, yeah, there's breathing. There's finding a place where I can be alone. Sometimes it's hard, though. But uh, it's kind of like a meditation, you know? You get you get to find some inner calm. Yeah. Just get back to like the core of what it is. What is it? What am I doing, really? Someone was telling me that the feeling they always had on the first day of set was that the director and the producers were thinking about their replacement, like who they're going to replace this actor with. Right. Is that a common that's thing tough, yeah. about acting? Like, yes, that's a common thing on the set. And uh, you know what I do to combat that feeling also? I go, okay, who here could do better than me right now? And I start looking around at the crew. I'm like, that key grip would probably do pretty good. No, no, I'd be better than him. You go around the whole crew, you get through all 32 people, and you go, I'm the best person here for this role right now. But sometimes you don't feel like that. <laughs> Sometimes you go, dude, that set dresser could definitely fucking come in here and crush it harder than me right now. That's on a bad day when you can't do it. Really? When you look around the room and you're not the best one in the room for the fucking part. You still feel that sometimes? Rarely. I usually feel like I'm the best one. Yeah. Dude, you know when I don't feel that way? And these are the fucking scariest things that I've ever done. But once in a while, I'll get asked to do like a little comedy bit on uh, the Oscars. Oh, right. I've done it three times now. Twice with uh, Will Ferrell, uh -huh. and one time just recently with uh, Neil Patrick Harris. And uh, talk about a pressure cooker. I got like, it's just like 25 seconds of uh, singing or something. But uh, yeah, you, you rehearse your ass off, and uh, comes time to do it. I don't know how people survive. I know I've lost years of my life because the heart's going so fast and the anxiety is so intense and you're thinking there's a billion people watching and then it's time to go, and Hugh Jackman's right there. He's definitely better at the, doing this song than I am. There's like 30 people that would do it better than you. And action, go, fuck! It's not a natural position to be in. And, and do you get that feeling, like that anxiety feeling where you're almost outside of your own body like yeah moving even feels weird like you forget how to walk i mean yeah there's an out-of-body experience that that uh, that that took place on that last one yeah no kidding so much of my life is just trying to relax trying to figure out how to relax um i read when you did that commercial when you were a kid when you were 13 you did the video game commercial you said something like i wanted it so bad because i wanted the other kids at school to see me on television was it a thing of like, if only they saw me on television, this would happen, or this would be okay, or like, why did yeah, you? Yeah, just acceptance, uh, and to you know be in, just have people, uh, yeah, like me. It's so sad that you would need something like that to feel like, uh, like you're loved. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I just I was obsessed with it. Wanted people to see me um, on TV. And did, did anything change after it's that? It's special. Yeah. I remember even earlier than that, like, I had this weird, it was a, it started as like a weird concept that I had. And I think I even like drew some pictures of it where there's someone at the center of the, the drawing, a stick figure. And then there's a bunch of people all around that stick figure. 
and I wanted to be, be the person, it's so narcissistic, but I wanted to be the person at the center. I had, I had a fear of being, uh, you know, one of the people on the outside looking in. Wow. What that's about. But I think what you're describing is probably really common among anyone that takes this path. Yeah. Right? Because if, if performing feels that great to you, and if it's so, you know, if that's the drug you need or the, the buzz that you need, like not getting it is just, like that would be an unacceptable life. Like did you ever think, oh, uh, I, have, I have another idea for a career if the acting thing doesn't work out? Or were you just like, I am, this is all I'm going to be able to do? I mean, there was definitely like the idea or the feeling that I could just live at my mom's house forever. Really? If things didn't work out. I didn't really have a really good backup plan, but I think that I would have ended up in the arts somehow, no matter what. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, I, I also had a passion for a drawing, doodling. Oh, you did? Animating, I did some animations. Old school, no computer, just like cell animation. Draw, and then you can, yeah, take a picture of it, draw. Do you have a character? that you created? No, but I, I copied, there was, I was obsessed with this uh, cartoon of the inside of a pinball machine on uh, Sesame Street. Oh, really? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. There's a ball and you follow the ball inside the, and I did a, a cartoon based on, like I, I loved that, and I did a, a pinball machine inside of a pinball machine cartoon. But yeah. I could have ended up like teaching kids how to make candles at summer camp. I think I had that in my head as a backup plan. That was like a viable employment option. I would have been doing something in the arts. But I want to talk about Tenacious D because I feel like it's, when I first saw Tenacious D, I saw it at Largo. And I think I must have seen it pretty early on. Because so I used to go to John Bryan when he was still going to um, the Alligator Lounge pre-Largo. So I think I saw you guys pretty early. And it seemed more like a sketch comedy thing than a, like a band at the beginning. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think growing up, I took my music very seriously, right? And mm. I, put, I put things like Dr. Demento and uh, Weird Al Yankovic in a different category. Right. But then I think with Tenacious D, you know, you've got... Dust Brothers producing, you've got Dave yeah. Grohl playing drums, and everything about it is like kind of really serious, except for the lyrics. Yeah. And I wonder if, if when, you, when you're sitting there, you're writing this like pretty big, powerful song, do you ever stop and go, God, maybe, maybe I should just like make a serious record, right? Like, does it ever cross your mind or does it even matter to well, you? Well, you know, we started off, me and Kyle actually wrote a song uh, before we started writing Tribute, um, that was, uh, I, uh, you remember that girl I told you about, Melissa Burton? Yeah. Who we did that play together? Yeah. Mud. She dumped me. She directed? Me. Yeah, she dumped me for her poetry teacher, and it crushed my soul and my heart, and I, and I uh, wrote this song with Kyle that was like a breakup song. Okay. And it was just a hot blast of cheese. And, um, and we, that's when we realized we don't, we're not a serious band because that's what that's what our serious band sounds like this sort of melodramatic um, 
corn sauce. So at the beginning, you were like that. It was a lot work. like that band that I had in high school, that no one listens to. We needed that ingredient. The the uh, the comedy, the the clowns, the clown powder. That's so interesting because I feel like you had a bad experience in high school. Yeah. And then you write a song and and it doesn't go great, and that's yeah. sort of it. But I, I I don't know. Like I I look, you know, two records later and yeah. And I just wonder if you ever go, I, I mean, is it too vulnerable for you to like, to put something out there that's that close to your heart musically and then have it not work? I never once have thought, God, if only we had really bared down and, and focused on serious songwriting. I never, because I, I believe to my core that that's not what we were meant to do. Right. right. I mean, the other people have said that. Like one yeah. time... Uh, when I was doing that movie, um, I had that little part in Dead Man Walking, and Sean Penn was like, because um, he saw Tenacious D play, we played the rap party. Okay. He said, yeah, you guys are really good, but why don't you, why aren't you a real band? Why aren't you like a serious band? And, uh, and I was like, what do you mean, like Pearl Jam? Yeah, man, like Pearl, whatever. I was like, that, we, we're not, because we're not. We make fun of the serious bands. Right. That right. is what we are here to do. Because well, I, it, there's enough serious bands. There's not enough tenacious Ds. Right. There's too many serious bands. Wait a second. I, I have enjoyed some Pearl Jam. Sure. Day, just in case. Eddie, you watching? You're a master. A master. <laughs> but there's something catchy in each one of your songs. I think there is yeah. a hook. and. And I, I think as I'm asking you these questions, I realize where they're coming from. And that is that I think I grew up wanting to be in a band right. that was successful so bad and go yeah. on tour. That it's so fun, dude. It's, it's so fun. And I think that, like, I look at it and I go, you know, it, what, what is, you know, is, is there something behind the comedy versus serious stuff for you? Or if that's just where you, where the space you live in? That is where I'm comfortable. Right. One time I sang a serious song at a wedding, at Bob Odenkirk's wedding. He had me sing a, a, a really sincere song. Did you forget the lyrics? No, I remembered the lyrics and everything. And the notes were too high, but I hit the notes. Really? Everything was perfect. It was beautiful. And no one was videotaping. I was, I was really disappointed that no one captured it because uh, I was like a real, real serious singer for a second there. Was that like pre-iPhone? Yes. It's too bad. They didn't have them in the 90s. Well, okay, so last thing I want to ask you is about, um, you know, you've done some hugely successful movies. Like, I was watching the end credits of School of Rock, and it's one of those end credits where you break the fourth wall, and you're singing with the kids in your apartment, and, and you're, like, pointing at the credits, even though you're, like, going the wrong way as the yeah. credits. <laughs> you're like, I don't even know who that guy is. And you're cracking the kids up in the room. And, and I'm thinking those kids must have been feeling like this is the coolest adult we've ever met. And why can't all adults be this way? Right? Like, I'm assuming after the experience of being in that film with you, you just get the sense from those closing credits that, that you connect with children and, and, and I, I don't know, I think about your own relationship with your kids. If you, if, if, like how that plays out, if they get like that dad 
and if your wife has to put the hammer down, or if they can even see you seriously as as an adult. They get that dad sometimes, but I can't sustain that that guy for a lifetime. You know that right. that's no, that's something I do. You know. For the cameras, but at home I'm way more sort of serious. Sometimes there's you know little glimmers of of crazy clown fun times, but you know no, I, I'm way more chill. But I get the sense that you you also, I don't know uh, that there's there's sort of this thing with kids. I feel like my generation growing up, kids were still sort of seen as second-class citizens. Right. And that came from earlier generations where kids were supposed to be seen and not heard and all, all oh. sorts of things where kids were, like, not seen as full human beings. Yeah. You know, and I wonder if you sort of, you know, I don't know, if you have a certain way that you want to raise your kids where it's not that way. Well, it, it, with in that respect, yeah. I, I definitely talk to them like they're fully formed human beings. I mean, I I, uh, I respect them in in that way, uh, yeah. And we have good, meaningful heart to hearts. I think that's so important. I, I I think that that's that's the thing I most hope I can do with my kids yeah. is not let them escape childhood thinking that they're somehow not good enough or found wanting or being judged. Because I think that's you know we've talked a lot here about that feeling of self-judgment and self-criticism. You know, you don't want to pass that on to your kids. You know? That's a really depressing way to end a conversation. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. But I, I want to thank you so much for doing this and, and for, you know, kind of opening up about this stuff because I feel like I've known you peripherally for a long time, but I, it's so interesting to get to know what drives people and especially really successful people and I don't feel like I'm sitting here talking to someone who's going, I'm super successful and I have it all figured out. I feel like I'm talking to someone who, like, sh- works hard and struggles. Yeah, definitely a work in progress. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, it was my pleasure. I had a, I had a blast talking. I hope I didn't uh, uh, ramble on too many directions. I have a tendency to do that. I have a little ADD. No, I, I you know what? Way. No matter how long it goes in here... Yeah. It all ends up 58 minutes long on Good. the other end. <laughs> no, it was it's fantastic. Good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.